From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, a tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house, ready to take your questions. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-EWTN. 3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1 205 271 2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, the aforementioned Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing pretty good. Got an email here for you from John. It says, this is a question for Colin. If Mary was always believed to have been immaculately conceived, why can I find popes that taught that she wasn't? Here are just three examples. Eve was the pro- Eve was produced without sin, but she brought forth in sin. Mary was produced in sin, but she brought forth without sin. Innocent the third from uh, his sermon on the Assumption in uh, the 16th century, and uh, John the 22nd said she, the virgin, passed first from a state of original sin, second from a state of childhood to maternal honor, and third from misery to glory. And then um, uh, Pope Glacius said it belongs alone to the Immaculate Lamb to have no sin at all. What say you? Well, one is... um Let's take them at the, at the value which the, the author of the email uh, gives to them. That this is the di- denial of the Immaculate Concept. Mary was conceived immaculate, free from original sin. I would say a couple things. That is, first of all, it assumes that this is the, the statement that the, that the particular pope is, is making. And secondly, some of these popes are before the doctrine was defined. Uh, even Aquinas was uncertain as to how you could say that, partly because philosophically, biologically, uh, they didn't have the information that we have in the in the modern era regarding the process of embryology and reproduction. So only with the development of those biological tools, such as the microscope in the 1700s and then studying in the 1800s, do we know the exact method and chronology and point at which a human being comes into existence. These were points in dispute pretty much up until the 18th century, 19th century. So we have that information now, so that questions about 
embryology and conception of the human being uh, that are unscientific is that it doesn't become a human being until birth, for example. Now, in this case, uh, a statement such as uh, the one here that said, he belongs alone to the Immaculate Lamb to have no sin at all. There's a couple ways in theolo moral theology you can understand that. For Aquinas, uh, sin is in the imperfection of an act. An imperfection of act is called, uh, you know, of something that is otherwise good is called venial sin, and that can be culpable or inculpable. Human beings are almost incapable of doing the perfect act for lack of a number of factors that go into prudence, such as knowledge of the future. So the Blessed Mother proposed to her son, for example, at Cana, to, um, you know, to do something about the lack of wine, that the wine was, was being all consumed and there was none left for the wedding party. This would be, in a certain sense, a deficient act because she was assuming that you know, she could not know the, the plan of God with regard to the mission of her son. She couldn't know at which moment in time this would become, uh, it would become a public uh, announcement, uh, and the miraculous would become, as we would see in the course of the ministry, a very common feature of it as a demonstration of who he was. She couldn't know that, so there was a deficiency in their act. By a an overall analysis, you could say that there was an inculpable imprudence in that, or at least a lack of perfection, because only in God can the act, can act be perfect, because God's knowledge is infinite, complete, and total, and perfectly wise, whereas human knowledge is always lacking certain elements of circumstance or foresight or whatever, simply by the nature of human life. But in terms of culpable sin, of that Mary was never guilty. Culpable sin that said, to one, in one's conscience, this is an act that I posit that is good, that I'm going to do, this is a good act, and I willingly don't do it as best and as well as I can possibly do it. I'll do it, you know, maybe a haphazard act of piety. The act itself is good, but there would be in, um, imperfection in that. This kind of culpable sin Mary never committed. This is what the Church teaches. So it would be difficult to attribute this Pope to denying the Immaculate Conception. As it is, the Immaculate Conception developed uh, among the Scotus, among the Franciscans, uh, beginning in the, you know, the 12th and 13th and 14th century, and over time came to be accepted completely and totally and, under, and understood by the Church and declared a dogma. So in that respect, individual theologians could disagree as Aquinas didn't understand how to explain this. Uh, but how, where the church ended up is the fruit of the charism of the magisterium leading it into all truth. And when you understand all of the issues connected with it, you can understand how, for example, Mary was conceived in sin in the sense that two human beings themselves not immaculately conceived her. It's not a statement that she herself had the stain of original sin on her soul, but that the act itself could have been imperfectly done as most human acts are. And so this, this would be a way to try to get at, well, what really is being said here? But I think the, the better understanding is the way theological development takes place.
and that is the preponderance of its direction and the authority of the magisterium exercised in confirming and even in a definitive way, such as in the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, that the understanding that has been arrived at is the correct one and is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit to be true because the Pope, exercising his supreme teaching authority, has defined it. And so we get there over a period of time. So a few examples of this, and in the future people may look back at our time and see things said by different popes and say, well, that didn't sound right at the time or even now, but it was in, it was in you know, progress. Uh, I think in the moral arena there are a number of those questions today which are, are in progress, and we'll wait to see how the Church ultimately uh, handles them in the future. And just to support your initial observation, the most contemporary of those examples was from the 13th century. I would think so, yeah. Yeah, John the, John the 22nd was the 13th century. Okay, well, there you go. So the, in the time frame in which they still believe that animation, in other words, when the baby kicked for the first time and said, I'm here, no matter what the woman may have thought, well, I'm pregnant, you know. But when the baby, when animation occurred, that was when they took that there was a certainty that a human being was present. And the canonical things, such as you may not, it's murder to do that. Before that, there was a, a scientific ignorance of between the act and that moment. What was taking place? And they followed a philosophical view of a progressive development from the uh, vegetative to the animal to the human. And that scientifically proved out to be balderdash. And uh, the science has demonstrated the truth. Human beings begin at conception within a number of days, or no later than a number of days, than the parents act which produces them. And at that moment, a member of the human species exists. And that was in Mary's case, that's in our case, that's in babies conceived today, and babies conceived in the future. It's always a good day on Open Line when we can work in the word balderdash, <laughs> and we've done so right off the bat. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. I know that many of you out there including my lovely and talented wife, love a bargain. And we've got a bargain for you at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Don't miss these items that are marked down and on final clearance. The Little Patrons, it's a precious line of resin statues that are made with simple features and smooth edges for smaller hands. 
They're just over three inches high and make a wonderful addition to stories of the saints. Select from St. Patrick, St. Francis of Assisi, Our Lady of Grace, Our Lady Undoer of Knots, St. Anthony of Padua, St. Kateri Tikawitha, or St. Teresa of Calcutta. It's available now at EWTN's religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping right now of online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number to the phones. We go. Barbara's first up today. She is in Louisville in the Commonwealth of Kentucky listening on Holy Family Radio. Barbara, you're on with Colin Donovan. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jack. I was able to meet you and your lovely wife, Jeanette. Uh, a couple weekends ago, it's a family celebration in Birmingham, so I'm well, glad to talk to you again. <laughs> congratulations on meeting John Ed, and my apologies for meeting me. Well, it was fun, <laughs> and actually, on the way on the way down, I actually got a call into this show, and Doc, I was the last person to talk awesome. to Mr. Donovan. So okay. I'm happy to continue that just slightly with a little tweak. Um, in the last call um, from Mr. Anders, somebody had called in and asked about the tribulation, and he did mm-hmm. a good job of answering what that is. But I think that person's question might have been a little bit different than what she really meant to say. Well, there's been a lot of discussion in the Catholic blogosphere lately about uh, possible coming tribulations, mm-hmm. uh, not tribulation, I'm sorry, the warning and the chastisement. They're related to the um, triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary that has been discussed in many um, uh, confirmed Marian apparitions. And my comment is that while... We want to make sure that we don't rely on one prophetic person. Um, Father uh, Chad Rippinger recently, just on one of Chris Stefanik's shows, was making the comment that when these current prophets speak, we often don't get uh, the full picture. Heaven doesn't want one person to have the whole picture because they don't want that person followed as, as God with the answer. So little bits of tidbits have been dropped from heaven for the last hundreds of years. And for us to say, which is what I think Mr. Donovan was saying when I talked with him, but maybe I misunderstood, to say that we don't really want to pay that much attention to them because, especially the ones that, you know, don't have 100% approval of the entire apparition, something like Medjugorje, and does have approval of the first seven days. Those have been approved. The whole 42 years is never going to happen. But to say that we don't want to pay attention to Mary coming and saying, please, listen to my son, please convert, please go back to confession, please go to the sacraments. Warnings, you need to be patient, people, and do what you need to do. Those warnings have come in Cabejo and Garabandal, and people didn't listen, and in Medjugorje, okay. and we need to start listening. Well, first of all, we need to start listening to the Church, and the Church has criteria by which judgment is made what's credible. Remember, there are divine revelations there are, that are public, and there are those which are private. And it's the magisterium that has the charism of determining which is wheat and which is chaff. So we are best guided by decisions of the magisterium in, in this matter. And, of course, a, a particular bishop may approve of something. That's a good start. Uh, I said this uh, last week with regard to the the uh, uh, Kinderman woman, I think it was, from Hungary, and her writings, uh, which have an imprimatur, but have not her, her life and the credibility of her life and so on have not been judged by the Church. 
But we do have, as you noted, there are many things that go back a very long time. Uh, there are at least six saints, blesseds, and venerables who have spoken on these times, uh, some of whom lived as recently as the 1950s, Blessed Aiello, Sister Aiello of Rome, uh, who advised 20th century popes, uh, who told Mussolini he was on a bad course, and that proved to be a correct uh, warning to him. And so there is, as you say, there is sufficient in the private apparitions which the Church has approved, and approved in this sense. They don't confirm infallibility. They don't confer any kind of certitude regarding the content. But what they do confer is this. This is an individual whom the Church, whose life the Church has examined, whose heroic virtues at minimum, that's venerable, has been uh, determined, or whose heroic virtues have been confirmed by the miracle which leads to beatification, or given great, uh, as certain, much certainty as we can have in this world with canonization, which is, by all theological accounts, an infallible judgment of the Pope. So when we look to individuals whom the Church has confirmed in this way, that says, well, if they were lived a life of heroic virtue, then when they say, God said to me, Our Lady said to me, this saint said to me, then I have, can have confidence that there's something in there of value to me. And I take this as the meaning of the Catechism at paragraph 67, where it says the faithful should look to, uh, can find value in what has been said and by looking to the magisterium. We only know there is value in something when the magisterium has said there is no conflict with faith and morals here and in the life of the person saying it. There is generally not living people who get that confirmation. Uh, so we don't have, I mean, you can get a credibility in your life, obviously. Clearly, a Padre Pio had great credibility in his life. Are there any Padre Pios out there or Mother Teresas to whom we might say, or even John Paul II, of whom we might say, this person we will see canonized at some point, and have great confidence in their words and in their life that we would think that to get to that point and be of general universal witness and knowledge in the Church. There are very few of those. Perhaps uh, in the future that state will be said of Mother Angelica or others uh, who lived in different times. But the point is the Church is going to give credibility to that. In the same way that only the Church can judge public revelation, it would be ludicrous to say that the credibility of private revelation is based on the judgment of Jack or Colin or Mary or whomever. No, it's based on the judgment of the Church, and so the faithful are asked to look to the magisterium in that paragraph of the Catechism, number 67, to make the same kind of charismatic gift judgment that is made with regard to interpreting the public revelation. So with regard to the ones that you mentioned, uh, I do not believe that it's correct that Medjugorje has been improved in any part, in the discussion among the experts who advise the commission, which Pope Francis has not issued a judgment about, it is said that the possibility was there that we could approve seven. 
but not all, and because it's ongoing. Some people are taking that and running with it. That's not a judgment of the Holy See. That was a discussion among the theologians. The confirmation that that is what actually happened there will come when the Pope confirms that. That has not taken place. Garibandal never confirmed. Uh, Cabejo, yes, has very high uh, credibility attributed to it by the Holy See itself. So there are many of things today that you could say, yes, there's possibly good information here, but can I trust it with confidence? And the answer would have to be no. I can maybe look at what is being said there, but I need to reserve my confidence for those things with the ma where the magisterium has given guidance. Now, with regard to those saints and blesseds and venerables, there is clearly an outline of our time regarding a tribulation, sometimes called a minor tribulation, that will lead to the era of peace. And many of these saints uh, pre, uh, previewed this. The, the theology of Louis de Montfort speaks of it, of a Marian age, of a time when the Marian souls would prepare that time which is immediate to the coming of the Antichrist. This is another bit of silliness that's out there that the Antichrist is around the corner or whatever. We've not been through the preliminaries of this yet. We have to get to the unity of the church. We have to get to the era of peace. We have to get to the complete evangelization of the world, as multiple popes have said. The West is losing its faith. The South and the East will we'll take it from us or ta live it. So a lot of things are yet to happen in history. And when that peace will come is, as you correctly said, in the, in the plan of God, and we have to be confident for that. And I think knowing what is requested of us, as was told us at Fatima and by Sister Faustina and by other of the saints and blesseds, and knowing what the church has always taught about prayer and penance and reparation and so on, these are, these are the, what kind of impetus do we need? You know, is uh, John Smith, who's having a private revelation, more authoritative than what the Catechism says on these matters, or the saints have written, or, or Mother Teresa or others have written and spoken about, you know, prayer, love for the poor, love for the... We have all the guides, as our Lord said in his own, you know, in their own, regarding his own time, and that is if they won't listen to the prophets, to whom will they listen to? So people are looking for the shiny baubles, the things which attract us and draw our curiosity, as John of the Cross said, is the, is the danger with mysticism, both for the mystic and for others, as we get distracted from, the, from what is true and authentic by the baubles, you know, dancing around in front of our face, the curiosity to be satisfied. When is the triumph? What kind of sorrows will we go through to get there? We don't know. It's in God's providence. Let's wait. Let's pray. Let's do what we have to to evangelize and bring people to Christ in the hope that most of them at least will get the word and listen and respond. But it's the gospel we're preaching. And I'll end with what John Paul II said at Fatima when he went there to make his thanksgiving for the saving of his life. Fatima, he said, by itself would be nothing, but it's the gospel for the 20th century. In other words, it didn't say anything new that's not in the gospel. Uh, private revelations, they're, they're wonderful if they bring us to back to those basic things. 
But they're not wonderful if they distract us and get us involved with worrying about timetables and all of those things. And that's their risk. And I think the whole history of mysticism in the church, the writings of Ajana of the Cross or Teresa of Avila and others point to the risk of getting so fascinated with these things that we get, get distracted from the basic, the most basic things. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line, Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. Be sure to help out our friends at Spirit Catholic Radio. For all of you listening in Nebraska, um, their Carathon is next week. So if you're listening on any of their 15 stations across the state of Nebraska, or if you're listening anywhere on an AM or FM station, please be sure to support your local EWTN Catholic Radio station. They're working hard for you. We head next to the Republic of Texas. Richard is a first-time caller in San Antonio listening on Guadalupe Radio. Richard, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Can you can you hear me? Yes, we can. Fine. Go ahead. I have a question about uh, the anointing of the sick, uh, that sacrament. Mm-hmm. I don't think I understand exactly... Uh, one thing I understand, I'm hearing, is that uh, in that sacrament, the priest has the prerogative to give um, a plenary indulgence to the dying person. Um, and what I understand is, what I read is that one mortal sin is like about seven years in purgatory. And um, so uh, purgatory is going to be a long, long time of uh, immense suffering. And so, how does the priest decide who uh, gets the who gets the plenary indulgence? Okay. Um, f- first of all, that doesn't quite have the uh, order of things and the way it works correctly. Uh, what happens uh, when somebody is dying is the anointing of the sick. Usually, if the if the person is uh, awake. Uh, the priest will hear their confession. The anointing of the sick is a separate sacrament, but it suffices for the absolution of sin if the person, say, is unconscious, providing that in being unconscious or going unconscious, that their will was uh, to seek God and to, you know, but in in the end, ultimately, only God knows the state of that soul in that case. But the priest has to make a judgment you know, maybe he arrives, in, is this person Catholic? He has to find that out and so on. So these kinds of things are within the purview of the priest. Generally, I don't know of a case where uh, a priest would not give the apostolic blessing if, a, you know, at the hour of death uh, for any reason, you know, of the state of the, of the penitent other than that they weren't Catholic or they were undesirous of the sacraments. That happens, obviously, and the priest won't give that in that case. Also, purgatory, the, the, we have to understand what purgatory is. Purgatory is not in time. So there is the philosophers, the medieval philosophers, trying to understand 
what God is, what eternity is. We hear expressions like the eternal now. In other words, there is no change going on. There is no change in God ever. There is no progression. And time is the measure of change and of progression. We think of that of ourselves from one second to another to another. We can date things because we can we note the changes. We look back and we see all the changes that occurred as we as a child uh, you know came to a sort of self-consciousness and recognized that you know we you know we were this person who got to play toy with toys all day and all of the up to today. We 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 gauge that all those changes by time. Both the heaven of God is in eternity, but also where the angels and the saints and blesseds are, are neither in time or in eternity. So the philosophers and theologians use an expression, of eternity. In other words, there is something where the person's condition will never change. So you think of the person who is in the presence of God, they will never be outside the presence of God. Or the person who is in hell will never not be in hell. But the person who is just and dies as a friend of God, but needs to be purified, for as the Apostle tells us in the book of Revelation regarding the heavenly Jerusalem, nothing impure will enter in. So this idea of being purified as if by fire, as St. James speaks of it, this purification is what purgatory is for. In other words, for good people who die but who are not yet perfect, I was speaking earlier about how sin can be, obviously it can be grave sin where we take the uh, clear example. I kill somebody. I don't care that I killed them. I don't care that God told me not to. I kill somebody. The church says, well, that's a mortal sin. But perhaps they thought that the person was, you know, evil and they're misguided and they made a bad judgment. and There's not a full, full consent of their will in there. There may be some reason that they thought they were doing good rather than evil. And God will judge that. So should they be condemned to hell as the person who kills somebody outright with contempt of both God and man? And the answer would be that no, but maybe they need to be purified of those defects that made them make those kinds of judgments. Generally, the will being towards God, but imperfectly. And that's the greater part of mankind, that we will need purification. Remember, Christ said on the Sermon on the Mount that be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. So if we stand before him at our judgment, it's appointed to man to die once, and then the judgment, as we read in Hebrews, if we stand before Christ, the judge, in judgment, and we're not evil, but we're not perfect, what becomes of us? Well, the church says there is a place of purgation, of purification, where those weaknesses and defects and attachments to creatures, in other words, those things which gave, prevented us from being wholly for God, completely for God, as many remarkable human beings have been down through the ages. We can point to the apostles, the great, the great saints, gave themselves wholly and completely to God. But good people who aren't yet wholly and completely toward God, they're not yet perfect as Jesus commanded all of us to be. They aren't yet perfect enough to enter into the heavenly Jerusalem. What becomes of them? Do they go to boot camp? 
Do they come back as a cockroach, as Eastern philosophies you know, suggest? Come back as a cow or a cockroach. A reincarnate and do it again in an endless cycle of redoing. No. They're good. Their wills are pointed towards God. But they're impure. They're not perfectly towards God. And so whatever purification is, it's been described as a fire. Whatever is meant by that, that purification has the purpose of making us perfect so we can enter into the heavenly Jerusalem, in other words, into the presence of God. And so all of the language which the church uses necessarily by analogy or a, or a metaphor to of, of what is going on in purgatory, or in hell for that matter, or in heaven, we haven't been to these places. We only know what revelation has given us. So all of the language of the church is geared to make us think of these realities that we don't all die perfect. We can strive for that, and we should. Mother Angelica was always saying, you know, don't shoot for purgatory, you might miss. She was saying, shoot for heaven. (laughs) Because if you don't make it to heaven, but you're going in the right direction, the Lord will purify you and welcome you with open arms. So that's what purgatory is for, and that's why the church believes in it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Elaine, another first-time caller in Chicago, Illinois, uh, listening on Roku today. Elaine, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Hey, Elaine. I just want to ask, how you doing? <laughs> I want to ask a question about, I mean, I don't know. I've been hearing that. How can I put this? Most people say, I was born Catholic. I say, I look at that. You you were born in Catholic family. So which one is right? (laughs) I I think it's a euphemism that people say, you know, use. Um, You know, the, the church says that when a baby is born, it should be baptized as soon as possible. Uh, in the old days, in you know, in past history, uh, probably in many cases that would have been the same day or a couple days. But today, you know, the the grandma and grandpa and the aunt and uncle have to come from Toledo to wherever, and you know, we need. So let's do it. Let's do it on uh, the sun, first Sunday of October or something like that. So there's a little bit of a gap there. But I think most people think when they say they're born Catholic, they mean they're born into a Catholic family and they were baptized soon after. Nobody is born Catholic in in the certain sense, you know, that uh, perhaps you've taken that to be. No, you're not born in the state of grace, in the state of justice. You have to be entered through the passion, death, and resurrection of the Lord, uh, through uh, water baptism in order to enter into his uh, death and to rise up in resurrection in grace. And so that's true of every one of us. Uh, others who came into the church later in life, either as children through marriage or other circumstance or by conversion as adults, then sure, they weren't baptized as children validly by the religious group they belonged to, they would be baptized as adults. But I think most people, when they say, I, you know, I was born Catholic, they mean that in sort of the equivalent sense of, yeah, as soon as my parents could get me to the church and get the relatives and the priest together, I was baptized. And I think that's what that expression conveys, with not trying to suggest that they came out of the womb baptized or anything like that. 
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. To the desert we go. Scott is in Arizona, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Scott, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, I have a kind of a connect-the-dots type question. Mm-hmm. Um, I have uh, a neighbor who's Jehovah Witness, and sure. I occasionally entertain myself with apologetics with him, and <laughs> never it goes so far only. And um, I had meant he had I had shot a video out the other day of must have mentioned the Blessed Mother Mary, and he mm-hmm. responded back, "Well, she's a, a sinful woman." And my response was, how could someone be full of grace and have any room for sin? And then he responded back with a scripture of Galatians 4.26, where Paul is speaking mm-hmm. of mother as Jerusalem. So I, I read the whole chapter, and it, and it took me to um, a, little, a little understanding of Abraham and Sarah, child born of you know, a slave woman and a, and a child born of a, pro, a promise, and also that um, the, there's a correspondence with uh, Mount Sinai and Jerusalem. And so I'm trying to tie in, you know, Holy Mother Church, Mary, the New Eve, mm-hmm. and, and, and understand it, but, I'm, but I have little voids in this that I'm sure. trying to connect. So yeah. I thought maybe you can help me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think those are all good foreshadowings of the New Covenant. I think what will be difficult there in, 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 in dealing with your neighbor will be to get the recognition that the foreshadowings that are in the Old Testament have a fulfillment in Christ and a church which he established because uh, they have a very convoluted understanding of Scripture that leads to the, you know, the end of the 19th century and the birth of the Watchtower Society. So uh, they've got to cover that gap somehow. But, but here, here's the analogies. Everything that God did in establishing uh, Israel has been uh, done in establishing the new Israel. The giving of the law on Mount Sinai, the giving of the Beatitudes on the, sermon, on the Mount of the Sermon in Galilee. There the law of, the law of justice, and in Galilee the law of charity. And, of course, our Lord goes on to say that he didn't come to get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. And so the expression justice is fulfilled in charity. In other words, if you're not just to your neighbor, you're hardly going to be charitable either. But justice, charity, can reach down in mercy. So if your neighbor strikes you, justice would be to strike him back. You know, if he pulls out your eye, pull out his the law of the law of revenge but charity would say i can forego that there's something wrong with this person they would do that that i but i can show them mercy i can show them love i can even turn the other cheek i can show the face of grace and charity rather than the face of justice and revenge because when we do that ourselves it looks more like revenge anyway than justice let the courts do that. Let, the, let a, a civil judgment, a criminal judgment be done. But when we strike out, it's more likely in revenge, not in pure justice. Justice as God demands of it. But the Lord gave us charity in order to guide our exercise of justice so that justice fulfills the law, 
rather than destroying the law. The commandments still exist. The commandments need to be followed. But there's a way of understanding them that is more full and more complete. If you lust after a woman, you've already done so. You've committed adultery in your heart. The understanding that the purity of the motive that is necessary there in the Christian versus simply avoiding doing something which is wrong, morally wrong, should be a purity of motive. We should be moving towards the good, not just avoiding the evil. So this is what Christ came to do. So when you look at Jerusalem, why in the end of the New Testament is there a new Jerusalem? Why is the new, new Jerusalem the foundation? Is obviously Christ, but it's the apostles. So Christ and the apostles are spoken of somewhat equivalently, although, of course, the apostles depend fully on Christ, but the foundation stones are the apostles. It's because Christ established a church. So you see that in the New Testament. You see it's clear he established an assemble of those, assembly of those he called to redemption and those who accepted redemption. And they picked a word, the, the Jews had the word synagogue, which meant the assembly of, the, of Jews. We have the word ecclesia, church, which is the assembly of the elect. This is a Greek, Greek word, which meant those who had the right to vote and so on in, 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 in politics. Well, we are those elected by God in to, to receive the, the law of Christ. And so there are all kinds of these analogies that you can see between the two testaments to see. So you go back on the mother... Mary, the Pope Francis, declared her the mother of the church, is an expression that's been used off and on over the centuries. Uh, Pope John, John II, Pope John Paul II, uh, had a mosaic put into the wall of the Apostolic Palace showing Mary as the mother of the church. So there's sort of uh, the New Testament expression. You have the church of the old law, the synagogue, ultimately the temple of sacrifice and all of that in Jerusalem. And in the church, you have, you have the church as a whole, but you have all the particular churches in all of the places, sort of the updated, the synagogue, little versions of the whole, so that every diocese becomes a little image of the whole church. And the whole church, by its communion with the Pope, becomes an image of the, the church Christ founded and is the church Christ founded. And then all of that perfected in the Jerusalem at the end of time. So you see how you have this progression. But who is the mother? If it's the mystical Christ, it can only have one mother. It's Mary, the mother of God, the mother of Christ. And we, of course, you see that in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, that there where you can read historically Israel, you can also read historically the Messiah, the descendant and the fruit of, uh, of David, uh, and who is his mother, Mary. And so the church has ascribed to Mary uh, the role, the, the woman, the woman of Genesis, the woman of Revelation, uh, the mother of the church, the mother of all of the redeemed. So these things definitely do tie together. And, you, you know, the, I would work on that, do your scripture reading, do your sort of your preparation and draw these out a little bit more and flesh them out in your own language. But I, I think you'll see there's a beautiful synthetic picture there of the divine plan at work through both testaments. 
Be sure to check out EWTN Pro Live Weekly with Prudence Robertson. It's on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. and repeats again at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. On EWTN Radio, you can stay informed and educated with the latest news and truth on abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and the entire culture of death we find ourselves opposed to. That's EWTN Pro-Life Weekly with Prudence Robertson this weekend on EWTN Radio. Next up is Frank in Denver, Colorado, listening on Catholic Radio Network. Frank, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello? Hey, hello, Frank. Yes, uh, yes my, my question is you talked about the, uh, the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And she was assumed into heaven. Uh, and she was born without original sin. We have a priest in our parish, he's a pastor, he said that uh, the assumption was no big deal, because it's happened before. It happened with Enoch, and it happened with Elijah. My thing is that Enoch was born with original sin. We don't know if he died. All we know is that he walked with God and was never seen again. Mm-hmm. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. Did he die? We don't know. But we know that he was born with original sin. So we know that the Blessed Mother was immaculately conceived, born without original sin. So how can this priest say that it's no big deal? Well, you can encourage him to go read the fathers who say that the two witnesses of the end times are Enoch and uh, Elijah returned, um, and that they did not die, but neither did they go into the heaven of heavens. But they're preserved for the end, and then in the end they will die in Jerusalem, as the scripture accounts. So no, they did not. They were not assumed into heaven, not into the heaven of heavens. Anyway, remember we generally we use that term for a number of things. There's the heaven of the angels, then and the saints, and so on. There's the astronomical heaven. Then there's the heaven of God, which is unique because really only God can experience uh, eternity as eternity. Uh, so. That can have that's an equivocal expression, uh, and there it's not understood by the church as meaning that he was assumed into heaven as Our Lady would be. No, there was only one other person who would have could have been assumed into heaven, and that would have been Eve. If she had lived her life, she and Adam, they would have been assumed into heaven, and then each generation after them, uh, by common opinion of theologians, but just that an opinion. Each, gener- each in- human individual would have had the choice to sin against God. Uh, but if they did not, then a point would come when the Lord would bring him to themselves. So uh, what, what Eve lost for all, Mary regained for all, although we don't get our assumption uh, until the last day, the day of the resurrection. Uh, so I-, I think the assumption's a pretty big deal myself. That's about all I can say. <laughs> Mary's in St. Louis listening on Covenant Radio today. Mary, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi. um, I understand that uh, the only sin that God won't forgive is the Mm -hmm. sin against the Holy Spirit. And I was wondering if you could uh, give me an idea of what that is or some examples of that. Um, Yes. I I was tempted to say jokingly, if you people don't like open line, that would be a tremendous sin. But uh, that would be too lighthearted. The, uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit, theologians have pondered this, and the general opinion is that at the, what will keep us going towards God is hope. We know, certainly love binds us to God. 
Faith makes us uh, understand and believe that he actually exists, but hope keeps us going on the path. Hope has two vices. In other words, there's the vice of excess, and that is presumption. Hey, I'm such a great guy that Jack, frankly, would whatever I do, God's going to accept me in. Exactly. He's going to bow down and say, oh, finally, finally call in your home. The other end of that would be the vice of despair. Jack, your life has been so miserable. Don't even think about getting into heaven. So there are people who get to the end of their life and, oh, my sins are so great. I am so, God can't forgive me. His mercy is not great enough to forgive me. And they despair. So it's a sin that happens at the end of life when either by presumption we think we have no need of God's mercy or by despair we think that his mercy will do us no good. But I guarantee you that any person who turns to God and seeks his mercy at the end of life, the answer will be, here it is, my child, my son or daughter. He will not refuse it to anybody seeking it. But those who won't seek on the one hand, they're presuming, or those who can't because they've backed themselves into the corner of despair, how can the Holy Spirit help them? He can't. So it's somewhat a human, moral, conscience, psychological condition that you end up in either despair or, discour- or, or presumption. And at that point, God God's not going to force our will at the end of life any more than he did anywhere along the way. Robin is in Tennessee listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Robin, just about a minute left with Colin. What's your question today? <laughs> Good luck to me, then. Good afternoon, gentlemen. <laughs> um, okay, so if God is unchanging, and he is a creator, and that means to me that he must always be a creator then how yeah you're thinking you're thinking (laughs) you're thinking as a person locked in time like all of us here on the planet for god that's not a point that's not a question for him his creating is always now although we experience in time the only material creations no all material creation exists that will ever exist it'll never go away until it's transformed at the end of time The only creation he makes now is spiritual ones, the souls he infuses into the matter of a new human being. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it Monday. Until then, God bless.